from the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning to read at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good morning, one and all. It's uh, nice to be back from um, the far-off Abingdon where we now live. Let's uh, pray that this will be a useful time for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry that uh, Paul exercised at Athens, and we humbly pray that the impact of it may touch us afresh this morning and influence our own behavior and speech. For Christ's sake, amen. This, I believe, is um, the last of your studies in Acts, and um, it is fittingly on Paul at Athens. Athens, the source of Western civilization. Athens, the cultural capital uh, of the world where philosophy and art and drama and poetry and history reached their climax uh, long before 400 BC. Uh, And here today in Athens, you can still see um, some of the most majestic architecture and statues that uh, human beings have ever created. And this is where a Jew, Saul of Tarsus, arrived in the mid-50s of the first century, alone. Our passage tells us, and do keep it open in front of you, because it's full of subtleties. Um, Our passage tells us um, what he made of Athens, and it's highly relevant to North Oxford, which, like Athens, is well-off, intelligent, gifted, and very um, assured. How could you make an impact on a place like Athens or North Oxford? This passage, which is uh, too rich to um, examine fully today, at least gives us five clear pictures of how we could approach a culture which is very similar to the one that Paul spoke to. First, I think we must appreciate the need. In verse 16, we read that um, Paul, uh, walking around, was um, deeply distressed uh, at the idolatry. Uh, Literally, he was pierced to the heart uh, by it. I asked myself what I would have done uh, visiting Athens for the first time. Uh, I'd have taken in the glory of the buildings. I'd have listened to the discussions of the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Cynics, three of the most um, influential philosophical schools there have ever been. Not Paul. As he moved around, he was appalled. He was broken. He was cut up to see the idolatry. There in the Parthenon, the worship of Athena, covered uh, uh, in in gold plate, uh, and she was no god. Uh, At every corner, uh, you'd find these Hermes, uh, these Herms as they were called, uh, and and these these were the marks of um, Hermes, the, the messenger of the gods. And Paul knew that there was only one god, and that his messenger was Jesus. It broke his heart to see the idolatry under all the sophistication. How different he is from us. We are surrounded by people in this city 
who are worshipping or at least investing their lives in money and power and intellect and fame and materialism. And we don't really care. They are without God and without hope in the world and it doesn't bother us. And that is the sickness of the Western Church, our apathy. In our pluralist society today, um, we think it doesn't matter very much whether people come to Christ or not. Paul lived in just as pluralist a society in his own day, and it broke him up to see them in that situation. And this is where mission begins, a profound compassion for people who are lost. And, you know, it's going to avail us nothing to have a fine, rebuilt St. Andrews if we do not have a burning passion to use it to reach out to those who are without Christ. And the flame for that passion gets relit when we go back to the cross. Second thing I see here is the need to debate. We find in um, verse 17 that Paul was um, debating all comers in the Agora um, with the religious Jews, with um, intellectuals, and particularly with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans uh, were very contemporary people with us. They were materialistic. They taught an atomic theory of sorts. They believed in pleasure and tranquility as the goal of life. And if the gods existed, and they were profoundly skeptical about that, then the gods are far too far off to bother about the likes of us. Recognize the the picture? It's very contemporary. The Stoics stressed rationality um, as the governing principle of life. They were pantheists who believed that this world was all there was and this world was divine, Uh, rather like Shirley MacLaine. Uh, And they taught duty as the main purpose in life, uh, rather like the public schools. So you've got the pleasure principle on the one hand, the duty principle on the other hand, amongst the philosophers of those days, and they are still the main um, conflicting views among non-Christians. But Paul did not shun the company of these people. He did not retreat into a Christian bubble. He um, debated with them. He discussed. He engaged them in the argument. And I do believe that we need to be bolder and more competent in graciously confronting the non-Christian worldviews around us. There are good reasons to believe the Christian faith. And we can advance them modestly but confidently in school, in science laboratories, in uh, public debates. Um, John Lennox has showed that in his debates with Dawkins and others. Um, I've found it uh, myself with atheists. It draws an enormous crowd of people. And the atheists have certainly not got all the best um, arguments The fact is that if we believe we have the truth, we are bound to share it. Third thing I notice here, we need to relate to the culture in which we live. Maybe that's the most important lesson that we have to learn from Paul's ministry at Athens. 
he entered into their mindset. He knew they loved discussing new ideas. And so he told them two very new things about Jesus and about resurrection, anastasis. They thought it was a woman's name. It was, in fact, resurrection, the very center of his message, the thing that Aeschylus has denied the possibility of. That's what he was debating. He knew that for all their um, philosophical speculations, they had not found God. And so he took a text from uh, a wayside shrine or part of, uh, of, of Athenian, um, uh, what shall I call it, um, fear of leaving somebody out. Uh, so you have an altar to an unknown God. You placate all the gods and just to have belt as well as braces, you have one to an unknown God. And brilliantly, Paul says, what you worship as unknown, that is what I am going to tell you. Absolutely superb contextualizing. Paul that makes, then makes his main address. He drew on the... Um, Epicurean idea that the gods, if they exist, need nothing from us, verse 25. And then he drew on the Stoic idea that the divine is the source of all life. But all the time, what he is doing is to dress his biblical message in the cultural terms that made sense to his hearers. He doesn't quote the Old Testament because it's not an authority they would recognize. But his message is profoundly biblical. God the creator, man made in his image. God the final judge and the one who wants everyone to grope after him. And it's not a hopeless groping. He can be found because he is not far from any one of us. Now, how does he substantiate a claim like this? He quotes two pagan poets, Aratus and Epimenides, to enforce his Christian faith. He takes the authorities that they would recognize, and he shows from them that the message he is saying, he, he's, he's giving them is accurate. He speaks into the culture but he's also prepared to oppose it, and so must me be. The Athenians were, were racist. Uh, they, they claimed to be autochthonoi. We're the people who've been in this place forever, and all you other lot have just turned up from time to time. No way, says Paul in verse 26. We all come from one creator who has given us our place to live in. And the Athenians admitted that they were God's offspring. That's what Aratus and Cleanthus and Epimenides and Simon were saying. And so Paul takes this and he stuffs it down their throat. And he says the divine cannot be properly represented by dumb idols, verse 29. If we are the living personal embodiment of the creative God, how can you think that even magnificent statues in the Parthenon and Erechtheum are worthy of worship. It's an unanswerable argument. 
You see, the fact is, if we don't relate to our contemporary culture, we will not gain a hearing. And if we do not confront the contemporary culture, we will not bring anybody to faith. Today, I think that the artists and the musicians um, best um, describe human longings. They're on the cutting edge of culture. And so the lyrics of the top 20 may raise um, the questions, but you'll have to turn to Jesus Christ for the answers. The fourth thing I see here is the need to address the blind spots in the culture. And that is what Paul proceeds to do. We are weak at that in Britain today, in the Christian scene here, but it needs to be done. Paul hones in on three of the most vulnerable areas in ancient Athenian thought and in modern Oxford thought. First, the origin of life. Where do we come from? A bunch of atoms in suspension. That's what the Epicureans were saying. Very modern. But how can lifeless atoms produce living beings? How can dead matter produce living mind? No, says Paul, we are his offspring. The origin of life, he turns then to the meaning of life. The Epicureans claiming pleasure. The Stoics claiming duty. Neither, he says, is worthy of God's offspring, made to feel after him and find him. And modern men and women are very vulnerable on issues of purpose and meaning. And we need to develop an apologetic to effectively reach that. The origin, the meaning, he spoke also about the end of life. Paul speaks of death and judgment. Judgment or accountability is the flip side of freedom, the freedom which Athens boasted so strongly. And Paul shows them that they are accountable to the God who gave them freedom. How that must have stuck in their gullet. How they must have resented that. But I'll bet they never forgot it. The last thing that I see in this great passage is the need to challenge. We are often afraid to do that. We are too politically correct. But Paul was not. You could not find anything more countercultural, anything more in your face than the way in which Paul ends his address. Repent, he says. Change direction. Why should these pleasure-loving intellectuals repent? Because God will judge them. Judge them? Laughable. Of course he won't. It's not laughable, says Paul. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see the argument? Judgment may seem highly improbable. The resurrection was highly improbable. But that improbable resurrection in the past is certain. And the improbable judgment in the future is certain too. You will one day, he says, stand before the God who raised Jesus from the dead. How will, you fare, how will you fare then? That's his challenge. And it's as strong today as it was 2,000 years ago. The reaction 
was very modern as well. Indeed, it always happens. I find myself doing uh, quite a few missions in universities these days, and always the same triple reaction happens. Some mock. Some say, we will hear you again. We'll think about it. And some respond and commit themselves, as they did here in Athens. And Paul formed a, a, a little alpha course, which in due course developed into the church in Athens. As we look back on this superb address, we see that Paul is offering them a fresh pair of glasses, a fresh starting point for looking at the world. The glasses which they wore in classical Greece were blurred. Greece had never been able to overcome the divide between reason and will, between the physical and the spiritual, between time and eternity. And Paul offers them a new pair of glasses, a new starting point, a starting point which you cannot prove. You can't prove any starting point. You can never prove an axiom. But he offers them a new starting point which they cannot prove, but which really fits the facts. And that starting point is Jesus, divine, human, and risen from the dead, who will one day judge. He is the bridge between time and eternity, between the physical and the spiritual. And in this most sophisticated city, Paul was profoundly moved by the spiritual lostness of men and women. He spoke in terms their culture could understand. He confronted the blind spots that their culture nourished. And he made Jesus central in his preaching and called people to repent and to trust in the God who raised him from the dead. In Oxford, we are called to follow his example. Let's pray. Lord God, what a fitting place to finish a course on the Acts. In this sophisticated city of Athens, so like our own, we thank you for the deep compassion of Paul. We thank you for his understanding of the culture, his willingness to come out and debate his skill in pointing to the weak elements in their worldview and his offer of a fresh pair of glasses based on a God who brought the spiritual into the physical, who brought eternity into time, and who can become the bridge for all of us to return after God, not just to feel after him, but to find him and to rejoice in him. We pray that this church may, for many centuries to come, still be known as a place where these issues are teased out, 
where the challenge and the love of Jesus Christ is brought to men and women. We ask it in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.